from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the CER podcast with me, Beth Oppenheim, and today I'm with John Springford, the CER's Deputy Director. And we're going to be talking about everyone's favourite topic at the moment, which is a no-deal Brexit. Hi, John. Hey, Beth, how are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. (laughs) So this week has been a pretty exciting one for British politics, though perhaps not if you're Boris Johnson. We're recording this on Thursday, the 5th of September, and this Tuesday, MPs voted for a bill which, if it's to pass the Lords, would force Boris Johnson to ask the EU for an extension to the UK's membership, that is, if there's no progress on a deal by the 19th of October. And then Boris Johnson decided to sack 21 Tory MPs for rebelling against him. And then on Wednesday, the Prime Minister failed to get MPs backing for a general election. So it's been quite a week for Boris Johnson. One thing is for certain, which is that no deal is still a possibility. And John has just written an insight where he predicts how negotiations between the UK and the EU would play out if we do end up in that nightmare scenario of no deal. But before we get there, John... On Monday, we know that Johnson's planning to go back to Parliament to try and get support for a general election. Can you explain to bemused bystanders what are MPs' calculations with regard to a general election and the prospect of no deal? Yeah, I can certainly try. I mean, it should, should say this is this is going to uh, come out after Monday, so I, I don't necessarily want to speculate on the outcome and then have egg on my face when I'm totally wrong. But as things stand, we're recording this on Thursday... As things stand, the Prime Minister has tried to have a general election and has failed to get Labour support for it. Under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, he needs to get two-thirds of the House of Commons to to agree to a general election. So the rumours are that on Monday he will put down a new bill which will supersede the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which will allow him to call a general election with a simple majority. At the moment, Labour has put out conflicting messages about whether it wants a general election or not. The predominant view in the Labour Party is that we should wait and we should allow Boris Johnson to stew in his own juice and that if we have a general election now, we're only on 23-25%. It's going to be a struggle. Better to let him really struggle with the fact that he won't be able to deliver on his pledge to leave the EU do or die at the end of October. There are some in the Labour leadership who disagree with that view and think that we should have a general election um, as soon as possible. We so just, who, who will win that struggle? Well, that's the, that's the question. and um, My suspicion is that those who uh, want to have a general election later will, will win out. The question is whether the Scottish National Party would vote with the Conservatives to put through the new bill for a general election on Monday because the SNP want to lock in their 
potential gains from a general election because they can win, I think it's 12 Conservative seats, they can certainly win a large majority of those if there is a general election soon. So that they might go with the government, but if that happens, then Labour and the Lords will do everything they can, I suspect, to try and filibuster it. Either way, you know, this is a hostage to fortune, but it's looking less likely now that the UK will leave with no deal on October the 31st. But that does not mean that the threat of no deal has receded. Boris Johnson might win a majority. Um, the opinion, he's ahead in the opinion polls. It might be difficult for him to do so, but he might well. And so it's still worth thinking about what the implications of no deal would be. So not time to stop stockpiling your cans of beans yet, maybe. <laughs> so in your insight, you make the important argument, I think, that despite... British delusions of grandeur, actually, it's the UK that is going to suffer most from no deal if that's what happens, not not the EU at all. What steps has the EU already taken to protect the member states from the effects of no deal? Uh, it's just a matter of basic arithmetic that the UK would suffer most from no deal. If you think about the proportion of British trade, British exports, which go to the EU, compared to the proportion of EU exports that go to the UK, we're talking about UK exports being about four times larger. So we're looking at a much more significant hit to the UK from higher trade barriers. The steps that the EU has already taken to protect the interests of the 27 have been unilateral and they have been time limited. There's been a, a sort of sorry argument which has been going around that oh look the EU has been doing some mini deals with the UK to try and soften the edges of no deal and so in a no deal scenario there would be more of those and you know we would be able to ride it out that's not the case the EU has unilaterally said that for example clearing houses in the city of London will continue to be able to clear derivatives products which are denominated in euros, for example, which sounds really complicated and techy. Basically, that means that the EU has said for a time-limited period until March 2020, that in the event of no deal, they will not try to stuff up derivatives markets, which makes a lot of sense given the fact that the, uh, that the City of London dominates trading in euro products. Other steps that they've taken are planes are going to continue to fly. So UK companies will be able to send planes from Britain to the 27, although they won't be able to fly between EU airports unless they have an EU subsidiary. They've said that British hauliers will be able to um, travel into the 27 to deliver goods. And there have been some other unilateral measures, such as there is some funding which they will continue after No Deal, particularly programmes for peace that are supposed to um, help border communities, both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And things like the Erasmus programme will continue alongside other measures. But we're talking about minimal measures which are to protect the interests of the 27 done unilaterally and time limited and if further issues come up where oh actually some of our people some of our companies some of our financial institutions are struggling as a result of no deal then the eu 27 will say 
right, what can we do to help them? But again, these will be unilateral measures. And the reason they're time limited is because the EU strategy in the event of no deal is to try and reduce the amount of harm to itself, but also create incentives for companies to reorient the way that they do business and invest in EU operations where they were serving the EU market from the UK. So we shouldn't expect that those mitigating actions will be permanent. So the EU protects its own interests. Shock. Mm -hmm. Are there any further agreements that the UK might hope to reach to minimise disruption on the UK side? The UK will be in a a difficult position Mm. after no deal. Operation Yellowhammer, which is the government sort of no deal planning, there have been some documents which have been leaked which show that there will almost certainly be significant disruption. We can't tell exactly how bad the disruption will be because, for example, if we're thinking about lorry queues and congestion on the Dover-Calais crossing, then certainly the fact that the EU will at some point reinstitute checks and that tariffs will be payable on British goods entering EU markets there'll be quotas applied on agricultural products, that that will cause disruption. But it may well be that, you know, a lot of goods just don't get supplied and lorries look at a queue of, you know, uh, however many hours and decide this is just not worth it. And so we can't tell exactly how much disruption there will be, but there will be significant disruption according to the government's own analysis. And the steps that the UK can take to mitigate those actions are limited really because they depend on what the EU does at the very beginning. And it may well be that at the very beginning the EU decides, look, we're not going to institute all of these checks. We're going to allow some things to go through because we don't want to create you know, total chaos and we want some things to go through. But we don't know. And we can be fairly sure that you know they have a legal code, they have a border code, they have customs arrangements. And if the UK is a third country without a trade deal with the EU, then those arrangements will have to be put in place at some point. So it may not be that we end up with huge disruption on day one, although that might well be a possibility. But over time then we will see significant reductions in trade flows between the UK and the EU. I think that's a certainty. In terms of what further agreements that the UK could reach, they will depend on the terms of the withdrawal agreement. The UK will have just left without signing the withdrawal agreement, which, you know, there's 39 billion that the EU claims is owed. There are the securing of citizens' rights, which the UK has said it will do unilaterally, but we shall see. And there is the vexed question of the Irish border. Um, And obviously, that's going to be important for thinking about what kind of negotiations and what kind of deal the UK and the EU would reach in a no deal scenario. And you say in your insight that you think it's highly likely that the EU would ask the UK or insist that the UK signs up to parts of the withdrawal agreement in a no deal scenario. Can you explain why that is and what the UK might get if it did that? Mm -hmm. The reason why they would demand that the UK signs up to the withdrawal agreement is simply a question of brute realpolitik, really. The EU's interests throughout this process has been to protect its own legal order, number one, to ensure that the UK leaving does not leave a hole in its budget, number two, and to protect the interests of Ireland, which is a remaining member state, against the interests of its larger neighbour, the UK, which is leaving or prioritising the interests of Ireland. And the fact that the UK has left without without a deal because it refused to sign up to that withdrawal agreement does not mean that those issues will just suddenly go away. And so the bargaining between the bargaining positions of the UK and the EU will not change. 
the UK wants to minimise the economic disruption from Brexit while bringing as much sovereignty back as possible and end free movement. Well, the EU is indifferent to that, but is using the fact that the UK wants those things to say, look, you have to do these nasty things that you don't want to do. And in a no-deal scenario, the UK will be in a much weaker position because there will be disruption, there will be a fair amount of political chaos. You know, if we get there without a general election, then Boris Johnson no longer has a, a majority. And there will be enormous pressure to reach some sort of agreement with the EU to try and mitigate the pain and cost that no deal is creating um, and the EU will say fine we will be willing to negotiate a package with you but you will have to sign up to provisions of the withdrawal agreement. Right and looking ahead we've talked a lot about disruption that would be caused by no deal in the shorter term and it's easy to get caught up in that a lot of the discussion is no longer about the longer term relationship between the UK and the EU. What do you think that the consequences of a no deal outcome would have for the those negotiations for the kind of final relationship? So there are two negotiations that would have to be done. One is the UK will say, right, how do we get relief? What are the measures where we can get relief? And then the other negotiation is about what are the final arrangements going to be? Of course, through the sort of withdrawal agreement process, there was originally going to be a transition. Sign up to the withdrawal agreement, you get transition of two years, possibly extendable to four be extendable for longer than that probably and during that time of transition while you're still essentially completely within the EU's regulatory and legal system but you don't have a say things won't change economically but things will have changed radically economically and the legal basis upon which that transition was negotiated will have fallen away it was negotiated under article 50 so now the UK will have to enter negotiations with the EU under a different set of procedures to both get relief from the disruption of no deal and also to negotiate the long-term arrangements. And the risk for the EU here is that any relief that they give in, in terms of the immediate mitigation may well end up becoming the long-term relationship. So it's not as though the EU can just say, OK, fine, we are just going to offer you something which is essentially transition. And, you know, and then that just becomes de facto what the UK's relationship is. The other problem is that legally it would be very difficult for them to do that because there are two types of agreement. There's the agreement which the EU institutions themselves can just negotiate with a third country, which tend to be those which are just to do with goods trade, tariffs and quotas, and maybe goods standards. And then there are more comprehensive agreements, so-called mixed agreements, which have a, an impact on member states' own national government's laws. Things like services, which are mixed between the EU institutions regulating them and the national governments themselves. And then, if you want to go into those areas, services and the movement of people and so forth, then there has to be ratification at the national level and in some cases at regional level. Belgium is a famous example of this. And that takes much longer and is much more difficult. So the upshot of that is that it might be possible to have a kind of relief measure in goods, partly to help unblock the Dover-Calais crossing a bit, where the EU says, OK, we'll get rid of tariffs, we'll get rid of quotas, We'll, might even might even say, yes, you can have a customs union because that will really help. We might even have some good standards. But if you want us to go any further into services and the movement of people and so forth, then that's going to be much more difficult. And final point is that the price, even of that more limited deal, I'm pretty sure will be signing up to the terms of the withdrawal agreement. Right. It will be pay the 39 billion. 
agree to the Irish backstop, secure citizens' rights, and then we will provide you with this transitional deal from which to negotiate the final relationship, but that transitional deal will be far worse than the transition which uh, was on offer through the Article 50 process. So hopefully the UK is not going to make the same mistake as it constantly does of running down the clock, weakening its negotiating hand and then being surprised when what's on offer is worse than what it refused previously. (laughs) And of course, any situation we end up in, no deal, anything that's on the table is going to be far worse than if the UK goes with Theresa May's or a slightly different version of Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. John, thank you so much for talking to me today. Are there any parting words of wisdom you would like to give? Let's say you had the ear of Johnson, Johnson's team. What would you say to them? Uh, well, I'm not sure that they would necessarily listen to me. I mean, the, the one thing that, that I would say is that if the UK wants to have some sort of withdrawal from the European Union which is not going to be hugely damaging to the economy, which is going to have some sort of legitimacy in the eyes of the British public and which may persist into the long term and a new relationship can be built, then I would say that the withdrawal agreement is the only way, withdrawal agreement and transition is the only way really that that can happen. And my fear is that because of legal and political constraints on the EU side, that if we go into no deal, it will be very difficult to quickly negotiate a trade agreement which doesn't cause a lot of damage to the to the UK economy and which would provide some sort of platform from which to rebuild relationships with our, you know, most important, closest allies. So you know, my, my plea, I suppose, to <laughs> Boris Johnson, although I'm sure it would fall on deaf ears, is that if you do end up being prime minister after a general election process, that passing the withdrawal agreement and getting Brexit done that way would be much more likely to provide you with some sort of legacy as the person that got Brexit done and got Brexit done in a way which was fair and legitimate. Mm. Thank you for those pearls of wisdom, John. And listeners can find John's insight on the CER website, which is called How Would Negotiations After a No Deal Brexit Play Out? Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.